Well, good morning. Good to see each of you. How do you start a sermon on a sermon? Right, that's what we're doing. We're going to do a sermon series on a sermon. And if you're our guest, we do have a children's lesson, and you're welcome to walk your children down there, meet the workers, ask whatever questions you'd like. Uh, and they have their own lesson tailored for them. We don't call it children's church because the church is the body of Christ, but they do have their own lesson. Okay, so uh, this is how we're going to start. We're going to start by choosing the next passage uh, that we're going to memorize together, just like some of us did with Psalm 1611. Uh, we're going to do that with Matthew. Um, this passage here, you are the light of the world. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and disciples are follower learners. That's what they are. And so he, he says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Okay, so that's what we're going to be considering and memorizing over the next several weeks Together, If you have your scriptures, open to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. John Stott said in his commentary, If today's young people are looking for the right things, meaning, peace, love, reality... And I actually believe many of our young people are looking for those things. He said they are looking for them in the wrong places. The first place to which they should, should be able to turn is the one place which they normally ignore, namely the church. For too often what they see in the church is not counterculture, but conformism. You see that? The reason our young people, as they look for identity, and peace and love and reality, they don't look at the church, which is actually God's design, um, because what they see is simply a different form of the same thing in secularism. It's the same kind of conformity. Right? It's not attractive if our children go from a secular selfishness, criticism, gossip, comparison, and arguing to a Religious selfishness, criticism, gossip, comparison, and arguing that is dressed in religious robes. You see how that's not attractive? So what we have done as a church often is forced our children to look elsewhere for what is reality. That's what John, this is what John Stott is simply unfolding for us. He says, The church is not counterculture, but conformism. Not a new society which embodies their ideals, but another version of the old society which they have renounced. Not life, but death. They would readily endorse today what Jesus said of a church in the first century. You have the name of being alive and you are dead. We're about, this is the first sermon in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're going to find in this sermon is not just sort of sort of nominal teaching from a passive carpenter rabbi. We're going to hear the Son of God confront our attitudes. Our values will be tested. Our competing loves, even our love of other good things, will be exposed. 
Our reactions will be evaluated. Our religious practices like prayer and fasting and giving, those will all be challenged. Our worry, our anxiety will be addressed. Our profession of Christ will be assessed by the Son of God who said, many of you will, you will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these wonderful things and prophesied and done great works? And I will say to you, I never knew you. Our profession will be assessed by the Son of God Himself. And our ultimate foundation of what we are building on will be inspected. The Sermon on the Mount is not a note of encouragement delivered by a carpenter, rabbi, itinerant preacher, but is a declaration by the Son of God about what true kingdom citizens look like. How they act, how they think, how they respond. It's an amazing sermon. Some of the most familiar sections of Matthew's Gospel are found in this sermon. Some of those things become part of our everyday language. I even hear unbelievers say some of these statements. Love your enemies. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Judge not. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Don't worry about tomorrow. These are just common phrases that are taken right out of the sermon. But the danger is, and I think the danger is true for you and me as well, the danger is that we reduce Jesus' longest recorded message to a few sound bites, to a kind of drive-through for Christian moralism. And it's so much more than that. One commentator noted that, quote, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. And I read that and I had to evaluate my own life and say, you know, in many ways, that's true. Do we love our enemies? Right? Are we, are we drinking at the fountain of culture? Or are we really counterculture? The Sermon on the Mount is part of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Of course, earlier on in Matthew, you have the, the record of the birth account, the birth narrative. And then you have them going down to Egypt and then returning to Israel and then going up north to Nazareth. His baptism by John. And then you have the beginning of his ministry after he is tried by Satan himself in the wilderness. That first part of his ministry happens north around the Sea of Galilee. And he's going around to all these areas and you'll get a snapshot of his ministry beginning in verse 18. Let's look at that. Here's the calling of his first disciples. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. <laughs> so we're actually this morning going to look at what precedes Matthew's sort of narrative of the Sermon on the Mount to what happens just before that. Why did Matthew put these pieces of narrative here? Look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, what you see is Jesus calling the first four disciples, four men, four fishermen who were already involved in an occupation, we would say a career. And he calls them. So this is this is simply what discipleship is. Discipleship is not a class you take at a church. There may be a class that helps you and assists you in that. But you're not a disciple of Jesus because you attended a four week or an eight week or 12 week course. Discipleship is not a book that you read. It's not information you store up or training material you learn to use. It's not about badges and accomplishments. Here's what discipleship is. You are a follower and a learner of a master. So who's your master? Who are you really following and learning from? There could be 101 different masters. Do you know in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to challenge that? You cannot serve two masters. For either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will despise the one and love the other. So discipleship is about saying, this is the one I'm going to follow and learn from. That's what discipleship is. At its core, Christian discipleship is simply following Jesus. And when you spend enough time following Him, guess what happens? You begin to reflect Him. You begin to become like Him. Jesus saw Peter and Andrew, and what did He say? Follow Me. Their response, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Jesus saw James and John. He called them. Their response, immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Three things about this section become very clear. Because when he goes up on the mountain and he calls his disciples to him, his follower learners, he's saying, this is what kingdom citizens look like. Three things about this section. These four men physically left something. They were not just hearers. They weren't just saying, oh, that's right, it's Saturday. We've got to go to the synagogue. We've got to get our service in, and then we can come back. No, they, they left a career. Fishing nets and boats were abandoned, and family was left to follow the Master. They physically left something. They also physically followed. There was an active demonstration of their obedience And third, there is a straight line from the commission of the disciples to the Great Commission. Right at the end of Matthew, what does he say? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Do you know what that will require for some of us? It means we will physically leave something and physically follow Jesus to the remotest parts of the earth. So these commissions are tied together. And one of the greatest ways for the world to see Jesus Christ is by living out the Sermon on the Mount. So not only the beginning of that, the calling of the first disciples, look at verse 23 and you'll see a snapshot of Jesus' ministry. He calls these four men 
And now he proclaims the news of a kingdom. Look at verse 23. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Note several things about this section. It's very interesting when you're talking about the Son of God who takes on humanity. He takes on flesh. First of all, the geography. It's interesting that the Christ limited himself to a geographical region. He went throughout all Galilee. Flavius Josephus, who was a Romano-Jewish historian who wrote only one generation after this was recorded, he said this, Galilee had 204 cities and villages. That's a lot of places. For an itinerant teacher to go around this area of Galilee, this lake, at the rate of two villages or towns per day, it would take three months to visit them all. And that does not factor in the Sabbath. I believe this provides an accurate, I think Christ's ministry provides an example and an emphasis of what biblical ministry looks like today. It is proclaiming good news to nations, villages, towns. It's a snapshot of the mission that remains. But not only geography, it's interesting in verse 23 that he says he taught in their synagogues. That struck me particularly uh, as important because you remember before Jesus was born, Right? Matthew chapter 1, you have the birth narrative. Before he was born, what kind of worship did he receive? From eternity past, what did that worship look like? Well, he was in fellowship with God the Father and God the Spirit. There was this beautiful triunity of God. And when the angels were created, what kind of worship was that? Perfect, for the most part. You get a glimpse of it in Isaiah 6. They're bowing down these creatures that you have never seen before with six wings. With two they fly. With two they cover their their face. And with two they cover their feet out of reverence and honor. And they are singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. And now Jesus, the Son of God, is born having left heaven's worship and He gathers in a local synagogue with imperfect people with an imperfect service structure, with imperfect leaders, and with other people who almost entirely misunderstand who He is. He gathered in a synagogue. He didn't start his own little new thing out here yet. He was going back to the the forms that existed in His day and He was preaching truth to them. And you know what we would typically expect? We would expect the synagogue to burst out in revival. Why? Because Jesus is present personally. And even on one occasion in Nazareth, he read a portion of Isaiah. So here you have the Son of God reading the Word of God. And what happens in Nazareth? They're angry. And they want to march him to the brow of a hill and throw him over. 
See, this should help us reform our view of revival. Revival is not getting the right preacher at the right time with the right music and making sure he does everything right. Because here you have Jesus Christ reading the prophet Isaiah and they're angry. Now, Jesus will revive. He will bring dead people to life. It's called new birth. And he will confront the false norms, the religious leadership, the false view of the temple. He'll confront those and he'll expose those because those are all part of revival and revitalization. But folks, let's make sure our biblical expectations are aligned with God's word and with God's son. Jesus is with us this morning. We see in Revelation 2 and 3, he walks in the midst of the churches. His word is, has been read. His word has been sung. And yet there will be people here that, that leave dead in their sin. Notice what he preaches. Verse 23, he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's the unifying theme of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the kingdom of of heaven. He's coming to show you something new in a sense. The nearness of this kingdom has already been announced. And this is the central subject of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, this is what Jesus says. Repent. Why? Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's tying it into the Old Testament promises. He says it again in chapter 4, verse 17. Repent. Why? Same, same response. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. D.A. Carson said, The good news concerns God and the inbreaking of His saving reign in the person of His Son, the Messiah. The kingdom is drawing near. How? Because the Son of the King, the Son of God, who is the King of kings, is inaugurating this new kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is not about moral platitudes, but it's about the nature of what kingdom citizens look like. Note also in verse 23, there's so much here just in verse 23. Notice the sickness of humanity. You've got demon possession. You've got people having seizures that, that's, that's said separately to say that not all sickness is the result of demon oppression. What do these mal maladies illustrate what what do what does the sickness illustrate that there's a problem in the world it illustrates the dark shadow of death that blankets the entire world the whole world is under the curse of sin galilee is a small representation of the pandemic spiritual and moral sickness the effects of sin in the world Jesus spent his time with these kind of people, with the diseased, with the sick, with the demon possessed. Why? Because soon he would die to save. Listen to what Galatians 3 says. The Apostle Paul says, Christ redeemed us. He, he purchased us back from the curse of the law. That's the problem. It is a curse. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's a beautiful 
exchange. The whole world is under a curse. Well, how in the world do we get out from under that curse? Religion? No. By the works of the flesh, no one will be justified. Then how? The Son of God comes and He becomes a curse for you. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's when He redeemed you. It is the cross work of Jesus Christ. It's His crucifixion. It's His death. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. Those, the sicknesses, the, the mission of Jesus Christ is not to heal everyone who's sick physically. He could heal cancer in everyone, but He doesn't. He could heal you, but He may choose not to. The Apostle Paul, who had the apostolic sign gifts of speaking in tongues, and it seems healing, had to seek the Lord about a thorn in his own flesh, and God chose not to, to remove it. Why? Because even if He healed you of cancer today, or of some other malady, you will still die. You'll just die older. Because the wages of sin is death. So if He chooses to, you glorify God. If He chooses not to, you glorify God. Because what He has done is He has come not to simply bring good health. He has come to bring forgiveness. That's the good news. That's the proclamation of the kingdom. But also in these verses, note that Jesus' primary ministry, although it included healing, was teaching. Really? Do you believe that? Do you really believe that Jesus' primary ministry in His three and a half years of, on the earth was teaching? Look at Matthew chapter 5, 1-2. Seeing the crowds. Now remember, this isn't just the crowds in Galilee. It's, it's, it's people now that are, that are curious from Syria, even all the way down in Jerusalem from the Decapolis. I mean, you've got ten, this, this region of ten cities. They're all coming together and following him in this type of populous crowd, the popular crowd. They're hearing about this miracle worker. They're hearing about this, this very special man, and they want to see it with their own eyes. And what is Jesus' response? A long sermon. Yeah, it's okay to laugh because when you read it and you see the chronology, you're like, you know, you would think this is the breaking point. This is when he... No, he goes up and he sits down and he teaches a long sermon. That's his response to the populous crowds. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. The populace wanted a celebrity Messiah. An itinerant teacher who could provide bread and healing. We're not being critical in that. We would love that too. But Jesus' response was teaching. Do you know that His ministry would seem as out of date now in sort of an advanced technological world as it may have then? He traveled on foot. 
He was accompanied by a small band of men. His primary ministry was teaching, not music, not a band, not puppets, or other children's ministry, or sports evangelism. None of those things is wrong. Jesus' primary ministry, even in this kind of a needy place, was teaching. Let me just let me show that to you in the New Testament in sort of a small snapshot. In John chapter 17, when Jesus prays for His followers, His disciples, listen to what He prays. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. As You sent Me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate Myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Mark records the same thing. So it's not just that, oh, Matthew, you know, out of the four Gospel writers... Matthew really loved the teaching ministry of Jesus. Listen to what Mark says. Who, by the way, records a very fast-paced account of the Gospel. And it's all about action. Mark chapter 6, verse 34. When He went ashore, Jesus saw a great crowd and He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And His response? And He began to teach them many things. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, we will see as the Apostle Paul is writing primarily about the church, he says that God has given gifts to the church and two of those gifts are in the form of shepherds and teachers. So it's not changed. Here's, here's a rapid fire sample taken from the epistles. 1 Timothy 3.2, an overseer must be able to teach. 1 Timothy 4.11, command and teach these things. 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 1 Timothy 6.2, teach and urge these things. 2 Timothy 2.2 What you have heard from Me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to what? To teach also. 2 Timothy 2.24 And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach. 2 Timothy 3.10 You, however, have followed My teaching. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. 2 Timothy 4, 1-3, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. This is a very formal charge to Timothy. Christ Jesus, who was to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom. So in the light of this judgment and the return of Jesus Christ, what are we to do? Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why continue to do this even when it's not popular? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Titus 1 verse 9, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy Word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. Titus 2 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus 2.7 Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity. 
Folks, all those references come right out of three very small letters to young men in ministry. And the emphasis is the same that we see in Jesus' early ministry, that he is going around and he is teaching and proclaiming. And the reason we need to be reminded of this is the truth that Hebrews 4.12 puts forward. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, Your personality cannot pierce a person's soul and spirit. Your cleverness, your wit, your wisdom, your own counsel. But do you know what can? Do you know what can sink down and actually pierce that which you can't even see? It's the Word of God. It pierces the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow in discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, let's look at the sermon itself. This is the first of five major discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. What does the sermon mean? That's like one of the big questions uh, as, you, as you open up any commentary or any full book, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a full treatise on the Sermon on the Mount. What does it mean? Do you know how many interpretations there are to the Sermon on the Mount? 36. So let's begin. Number one, no, I'm just, we're not going to go through all 36 interpretations. Um, probably the best, most critical treatment of this is found in Craig Blumberg's commentary on Matthew. 36 different views. Here's a popular one. We're not going to go through all of them. Um, These are ethics that can't possibly be lived out. They're supposed to create hopelessness so that we run to Christ. Now, that sounds all great and everything, but it sure does remove the responsibility of what Jesus intended. Jesus addressed his disciples. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, blessed Blessed are you right now if you are like this. And he goes through that that whole treatment. Craig Blumberg did say this after he treats critically the 36 different views. He sums it up and says, The sermon thus forms the manifesto by which the new community Jesus is forming should live. And what does he say in Matthew 16? I will build my what? I will build my church. And all those one another's love one another and serve one another and prefer one another above yourself. All those one another's sink back into this teaching of Jesus Christ. John Stott wrote this about the sermon. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. The Sermon on the Mount portrays the repentance and the righteousness which belong to the kingdom. That is, it describes what human life and human community look like when they come under the gracious rule of God. And what do they look like? Different. Jesus emphasized that as true followers, the citizens of God's kingdom were to be entirely different from others. They were not to take their cue from the people around them, but from Him, and so prove to be genuine children of their heavenly Father. Another important point when we look at the sermon is I believe it's a renewed message or a renewed emphasis of an old message. And the reason I say this 
is six different times Jesus will say this. You have heard that it was said by them of old time. Meaning, the Old Testament said this. Thou shalt not kill. And how did the religious leaders interpret that? Well, sometimes they would hire out assassins to kill others for them. And that's even happened in the church. And they'll be like, I obeyed the command. I haven't murdered anyone. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. Do you realize that God's intention in that original command meant the heart? Not just the action? So Jesus says, as a prophet, but I say unto you, if you are angry with your brother without a cause. What he's doing is, it's a renewed emphasis on an old message. You have heard by them of old time, Thou shalt not, but I say to you six different times, you have this renewed emphasis of an old message. At the end of the sermon in Matthew 7, towards the end of that chapter, you have the response of the crowd. And what the response is, it's amazement. Because they contrast Jesus with all the other teachers, the scribes and the Pharisees. And they were amazed because he taught them with authority. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, and we'll get to that point, Lord willing, soon. We'll go through the entire sermon. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. See, he's still teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And it's the authority of the Son of God who's preaching to the heart, not just to the actions. You know, I would, I would expect the disciples being called on the shores of Galilee that they had their own expectations of what it meant to follow Jesus Christ. To be on the inner circle with the Messiah who was to sit on David's throne. You, I mean, there's occasion where they're even arguing about that. Who gets to sit on his left and right? Because that's only two positions and he's called 12 of us. And they're, and they're arguing and Jesus has to, has to ask them on one occasion, what were you arguing about on the way? who's greatest in in the kingdom see they got the kingdom part and they wanted to be part of that kingdom they wanted some of the wrong positions in the kingdom they misinterpreted the kingdom peter peter andrew james and john probably did not see the unfolding narrative to include poverty a lot of times we overemphasize the poverty of these fishermen no they had full-time jobs And when the second set of brothers left, hired servants took their place. Their father was very well off. They probably had an expectation that if we're following this king who's going to sit on David's throne, that we're going to be very well off. Not only in wealth, but in accomplishment. I mean, he's going to march down to Jerusalem and take out Rome. You can see this unfold in the narrative. But they probably did not expect poverty or difficulty or meekness, or persecution, or hunger and thirst. And I suspect we may have our own expectations as well as we consider the Great Commission. This is the counterculture sermon of the kingdom of God. A full human life lived under the gracious rule by the power 
of his indwelling spirit. So the question remains, and this is what we get to at the end of Matthew, are you a kingdom citizen? This is what kingdom citizens look like. As one man concluded, only a belief in the necessity and the possibility of a new birth can keep us from reading the Sermon on the Mount with either foolish optimism or hopeless despair. Are you a kingdom citizen? So what Jesus would say in John is, are you born again? And if you're born again, is there proof of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 in your life? As other people look at you, interact with you, rub up against you, even when you're tired and hungry, are you a kingdom citizen? Jesus said this in John 3.3, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see, listen to the term, the kingdom of God. He says two verses later, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Only citizens of the kingdom have entrance to the kingdom. He says this two more verses later. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So will you see the kingdom? Inaugurated by Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. If your answer is yes, then I encourage you to place your confession against Jesus Christ in this section of Matthew's Gospel. And if your answer is no or I'm not sure, would you please come talk to me and either I will talk to you myself or I will connect you with somebody who can guide you through what it means to be born again. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. This is our conclusion. It's an evangelistic sermon. Now we know that the children's song about the wise and the foolish builders and it's fun, right? Right? And whoop, 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 you know, floods come. It's fun. It's fun in, until we realize those waters rising up are the judgment of God. And there's a group of builders who face eternal destruction. So Jesus says this. This is the conclusion of His sermon. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. This is exactly why James says, don't just be hearers, but be doers of the word. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. It tried the very foundation, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking. No matter how firm it feels to your foot right now, no matter how firm your worldview feels to you right now, all other ground is sinking sand. Are you a citizen of the kingdom? Let's pray.